As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. My name's Debbie Marshall. I'm an investigative crime journalist and for more than three decades I've reported for TV, radio and print. I've written eight books, mostly true crime and won a Leadership Walkley Award. 
And I also track down the killer of my own partner. I don't tell crime stories simply for their salacious and sordid detail. I reinvestigate them for a purpose, to try and help find justice. And to this end, I've just spent the past 18 months investigating sensational South Australian murders from 40 years ago. It's led me from the Australian outback to the Adriatic coast into a terrifying world of abductions, killings and cover-ups committed by a shadowy network of pedophiles known colloquially as the family. Between 1979 and 1983, five young men that we know of were abducted from the streets of Adelaide, held captive, drugged and sexually tortured before being brutally murdered. And there were at least 150 boys who were also abducted, raped and then discarded. They were the lucky ones who survived. Debbie Marshall joins us in this episode of Australian True Crime to talk about her latest book, Banquet, the untold story of Adelaide's family murders. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Many of you will be familiar with Debbie Marshall's investigation into Adelaide's so-called family murders because of her Foxtel series Frozen Lies and the podcast of the same name. The book, Banquet, the untold story of Adelaide's family murders, brings it all together, ties up some loose ends and really clarifies the remaining mysteries needing to be solved for the families of the victims. For those of you who are new to this story, you're about to learn about one of the cases that gives Adelaide its dark reputation. Although only one man has ever been convicted in connection with the sexual assaults and violent murders of young men, it's long been rumoured that a group of high-profile men were involved. Those rumours were only encouraged by the rather flamboyant name of the man convicted. Bevan Spencer von Einem definitely sounds like a villain connected with a grand conspiracy. He was actually an accountant who lived with his mother and spent his weekends doling out handfuls of prescription drugs at gay bars around Adelaide, which made him quite well known and popular on the scene. But Adelaide's reputation was already building. In 1978, the first of eight known victims of serial killers Christopher Worrell and James Miller was discovered in bushland near the small South Australian town of Truro. They became known as the Truro Murders, and they shocked the nation. At around that time, gay men were being thrown into the River Torrens that snakes its way through the city, and sexual assaults were being committed on young men with regularity. But the family murders were something else altogether, although thanks to a veil of secrecy and a complex web of suppression orders, we still don't know exactly what they were. This story is so unbelievable. It's terrifying, but it's true. It's so scary and out there. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone who has friends from Adelaide of enough of an age, they will tell you these what sound like crazy conspiracy theories and you think to yourself, oh, God, come yeah. on. But then listening to your show, I, I realised, wow, I mean, a lot of this stuff is actually true and, and now, of course, you have extra stuff in the book. Did you always know that there was a lot of real truth to these crazy rumours? Oh, not really. I mean, I was circling the story for about 20 years and I 
was, you know, when I was really young, I was at university in Adelaide for two years and the Truro murders had just happened then. So I sort of knew then that that there was a dark space there and that it wasn't safe for for women um, or men. And and then I started to to look at the family murders and knew that I had to be at the top of my game before I went in there because, you know, we all know, as you um, know, reading the book, it's, it is beyond dark, this story, mm. uh, but for that reason beyond important to tell as well. So I didn't know. I needed to go in and interrogate what was uh, the truth, what, what were the lies and, and what lay in between, and hopefully I've, I've done that as best I can. And not only dark, but it feels like the perpetrators, the offenders, are incredibly prepared for investigation. So you have yeah. to be on top of your game for that reason as well. Yeah, prepared in in that they, uh, you know, they obviously knew what they were doing when they went out on these uh, ghastly hunting trips for for young men, but some of them appear to be very opportunistic as well. For example, the the last murder of Richard Kelvin, (sighs) if indeed it was the last murder. I'm not convinced that is the case. Uh, But if it was, then... You know that was definitely an opportunistic pickup. I mean, he was he was literally just, you know, a minute from home. That that gorgeous poor young fifteen year old boy. I mean, it's it, it's it's hard as a mother to actually imagine not just what he went through, but what his family and friends went through. We'll we'll come to that. But I'm when you say it's hard as a mother, you mm. are uniquely placed though because you have lived through early in your life or in your adult life, a violent crime. Can you talk to us about that experience and how that's affected your reporting and your approach to victims and victims' families? Sure. Yep. Yeah. So back in the day, way back in the day, in the early 90s, I was divorced and had met a guy called Ron Jarvis who, you know, I promptly fell in love with and he you know, fell in love with me back, which helped. And he also loved my young daughter, Louise, who at that point was two. So, you know, we were a happy little band of merry men for about two years. Uh, But Ron was a fisherman, a gorgeous man, just a country lad, really. Uh, But he, unbeknown to me, was also involved in marijuana. Um, And he was hanging out with a very nasty character who who I didn't know, um, a bloke called Stephen Standage. Cut a long story short. Uh, Ron went missing one day and um, I knew that he was had gone off to meet this Standage character. I didn't know why uh, and he didn't come home. Um, and so I went looking for him for seven months and I trawled through the muck of society, absolute muck of, you know, drug dealers and uh, you name it, um, trying to find out who he was and in doing that, um, I, I knew instinctively that it was Standage and I found him and he then started to threaten me with my life. Back off, you'll, you'll wear cement boots. It, it, it impacted my life so greatly that I had to sell the house. Um, Louise and I moved into state, but I never forgot him and I continued to go after him. And then after 10 years, he murdered someone else uh, and his DNA this time gave him away. And then one day out of the blue, I got a phone call from Tassie police saying, Deb, we've just arrested Standage for Ron's murder. And it was the best day of my life because, you know, you have to live through murder and its impact uh, and its terror that it leaves in its wake to really understand 
I guess, what it is. And, you know, it's one thing to lose a partner, but it's it must be incomprehensibly dreadful to lose a child. So of all the books I've done and all the true crime stories and television and whatever, I never forget that. I never forget that that I've been through a lot of pain, but by God, what they've been through, you know. So it's always a privilege to hear their stories and, and to get their trust. You've just done something that so many victims of crime or their families do. They say, oh, but, you know, I meet other people who have had worse things happen and I just remind myself. And I, that's such, that's an incredible thing that so often people say to me who have lost loved ones to violent crime. It's incredibly humbling somehow, it seems to me, to lose someone to violence. Yeah. Look, I have to say that I, I was a, I was the Crown's chief witness at his trial, at Standage's trial, and, you know, these killers are cowards underneath. They really are. I mean, it's one thing to go after a woman at 2 o'clock in the morning with these phone calls when there's no-one there, when there's a young... And she knows... He knows that I'm alone in the house with a young child. Uh, and, you know, but it's quite another when that, that uh, young woman grows into an investigative crime journalist and sitting across from him in court going, I've nailed you, <laughs> you know, I've helped nail you. And then, you know, my victim impact statement, he wouldn't look at me. I just kept saying to him, look me in the eye. And he wouldn't. So I said, well, if you can't do that, look up into the body of the court. And do you remember that four-year-old girl who was absolutely heartbroken? Well, there she is. She's that beautiful young girl who's now a journalist herself. Wow. She's the one in the red coat. Look up at her. He didn't. Wow. Two powerful women. I know. I tell you what, vengeance is sweet. Don't ever let anyone tell you anything different. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine there's many other people who have, you know, and journalists who've like solved, mm. helped solve a murder of their own loved one. I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah, well, you know, the cold case, they, they put a cold case team together down here in Hobart and um, they did an extraordinary job. And those, those boys were fantastic. They kept me in the loop um, because I knew from the beginning, as I said, that it was Standage. There was no question who it was. They just couldn't put that that together. And then when they got him, you know, they did this fantastic sting and they, you know, got him to almost admit, but enough to to get it over the line uh, combined with the DNA. Where is he now? Well, he's in prison. He's serving 48 years. Wow. So, so I finished my victim impact statement by saying, I hope you never again see the sky as a free man. And I'll bid you farewell to your lonely prison cell <laughs> while we go off and, you know, have dinners and travel the world and have a lovely life. <laughs> chilling fantastic yes your podcast then you you decided to real to go there I'm going to say to go there because this story the family is it has haunted Adelaide and Australia but really has haunted Adelaide for a very long time what really happened because a person Mm. has been convicted but there's always this lingering doubt that he Mm -hmm. wasn't the only person that there were very powerful people involved who got away with it and that there's so much more to the story and and you decided to take up this case why why did you decide to do that oh because I absolutely knew in my heart and my gut that it had to be told and that after having done you know six true crime books that I was ready for this one and you know my my genre is serial killers really um and unsolved so I've done some pretty horrific you know the Claremont serial killings in Perth which is now you know he's been put away for that thank god uh you know Derek Percy who died before they could get him and he's you know maybe you know 
eight kids in the 60s and I have no doubt that he was probably involved with the, with the Beaumont children's disappearance in Adelaide back in the 60s. Um, so I was ready to look at the family murders. So what we do know is that there are, so whilst Bevan Spencer von Arnhem, who is a pure psychopath, you know, think Ivan Milat, same, same type of character, whilst he was convicted for Richard Kelvin, the 15-year-old boy, in 1985, uh, there are four outstanding murders. Now, these boys were 14, aged between 14 and 25. Now, in anyone's language, four outstanding murders, in my opinion, uh, is not acceptable. So I wanted to go in and have a look at why that, why that was the case, what, what was going on there. So I started with the Foxtel series, uh, plug here, called Debbie Marshall Investigates Frozen Lies, uh, and I put a call out on that series for people to come forward, and in they came. In they came, telling me stories about being picked up by this, you know, by, by men and, and drugged and sexually assaulted and let go. Okay, and to think about that, what did that actually mean in real terms? Well, it meant to me that these were the lead-up offences. And then I started looking at it more closely and there were something like 200, 200 lead-up offences. And then I did the podcast. Uh, and in doing both the podcast and the, the series, I came to recognise that there were suppressions sitting around people's names. So I wanted to, to have a look at why those suppressions were still there and they were put on decades ago. We're talking something like four decades uh, in the administration of justice, which is a really loose term, which means not much apart from, you know, it's to protect people's reputations or maybe put their, you know, if there was a, uh, going to be a trial so that, the, you know, it didn't actually taint their evidence. Well, that's not the case today. There is no trial mooted. It is four decades old. You know, we're talking generationally now that people are uh, being handed this baton of grief. It just continues and continues and continues. Uh, and I think that these suppressions should not be a shield that stands eternal, that we should be now looking at them. So I had five suppressions lifted during the course of the series and podcast. That was amazing. That was amazing. And one of the people who agreed to have his name lifted was a guy called Lewis Turter. Oh, God, yeah. That was ch just chilling. Oh, my God, yeah. it was. Yeah, because you were sort of oh. arguing that, if I'm correct, it felt like you were arguing that the suppressions were put in place for purposes. They're, you know, suppression orders have purposes mm -hmm. and they were placed there at the time for specific purposes and then they were sort of just left because because they were, they were there because they were there and no one had challenged Correct. them in the meantime and th those yep. reasons no longer existed. So why have them? Quite right. So, and that's, and then I, you know, spoke to lawyers in Adelaide and interstate uh, who had a look at that and, and, and they all came up with the same thing. You know, these suppressions really don't hold any weight anymore. There, there seems to be not much purpose to them. Uh, certainly at the time when they were put on, you know, as I said, maybe a pending trial or what, that's not the case today. Uh, so there were, there were lots of names and we had to, you know, cut down the list of, of those names and so that's how we ended up with five. Um, but there are still names of people that hidden behind suppressions that I think it would be really lovely if a lawyer is listening to this would like to have a chat with me because I'd be really, really keen to uh, get involved in, in going back in. It's, I didn't have the resources or the time to do that um, myself, but I think it's important. Not for me. I think people need to be really clear. This is not about me. This is about the victims and the victims' families who want those suppressions lifted. 
because they don't want that baton anymore. Could you take us through it, please, from your, who knows where it began and ended, but as you see it, could you take us through the the crimes, this, this story? Okay, so it started in the 70s. So if we take our minds back, it was Don Dunstan. So it was the liberation of South Australia, taking it out of that fusty, musty, mothballed image and bringing yeah. it, you know, dragging, kicking and screaming into the light. It was Dunstan who, to his full credit, legalised homosexuality. You know, he was an incredible premier. But, you know, he was also, he liked his parties. I've always found Adelaide a swing in town, to be honest, Deb. I've always yeah. found Adelaide a particularly swing in town. Like I've yeah. I've gone there to tour as a comedian and I've gone for the festival, so I'll go and spend, you know, maybe four weeks there at a time over the years. And it's the kind of town where you're offered a lot of drugs, there's a lot of swinging mm-hmm. parties, mm-hmm. And, and the locals are incredibly friendly. And, yeah, yeah, it's the sort of town where you're embraced and, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a fun town. It's a good town. It, it's a really good mm. town. I mean, I, I love Adelaide. I love yeah. it. It's a beautiful looking city. Yeah. I love the state. I love the wines, um, and the food. The people are fantastic. Uh, but, but, you know, we can't deny this dark side. It exists. It's real. You know, I spoke to um, a psychologist, and I said, you know. South Australia's got this shocking reputation as being, you know, one of the murder capitals of the world. That's not right, is it? He said, no, it isn't. But it certainly punches above its weight in terms of serial killings. So, I mean, I did the book, for example, on the Snowtown serial killings, The Bodies in the Barrel, the book that the movie was based on. Wow. Mm. You know, that side of Adelaide, that, that... the northern suburbs, northern suburbs, um, you know, yeah. where where you get the the waft on a on a still day of the nearby abattoir, you know, mm. people living in these sunless housing trust houses, and I went in there and, and virtually embedded there for quite a long time. I can tell you, it was horrendous. You know, eleven killings, twelve, and one, one was they were found not guilty. Shocking, shocking story. But then I turned my my uh, attention years later to the family murders in this book, Banquet, and that other face, you know, the face of the festivals, the, the food and wine scene, you know, the the gay scene. Cabaret festival. Yeah, Dunstan's, mm. Dunstan's Adelaide, you mm. know, um, with its high heels and its lipstick and its, you know, I'm a flashy bitch now, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, don't put me in the corner anymore. Don't tell me yeah. that I'm... A second cousin, I'm not. But but caught up in all that excitement and caught up in that liberalisation became, uh, that's then started this really nasty underbelly and we, we started to see it early in the 70s. Of the, of the drug boys, you know, the, the sexual assaults, the boys who got away, the very lucky boys who got away, who remain haunted, by the way, well into their the very famous beat along the torrens there near the university. Yeah, number one beat. Mm. So, so you had, and then we had, you know, it started the decade pretty well started with the with the uh, drowning of um, Dr. George Duncan, who the professor, uh, and you know there were always rumours at that time um, of that, and and later a couple of vice squad. Um, Police officers uh, went to court for being in, possibly involved or allegedly involved, uh, and they were acquitted uh, of that. So that remains unsolved. 
you know, let's go cast our mind back to the Beaumont children and the Ratcliffe-Gordon girls, you know. So we look, we're talking stains on South Australia that have been there a long time and then, then Truro and then we get into the, the, the um, I mean, the Truro killings are astonishingly evil, you know, ter- terrible, terrible murders of young women and then the family murders. And I, I called the book Banquet because... I came to see it as like a medieval feast, a debauched feasting on young men. So think of it as a hunting party, that these men are going out, Von Arnhem, you know, one of the Hetcherangs. I'm not suggesting in the book that he is or was the main perpetrator. Getting these boys in the cars, drugged to the girls and then taken back to houses, one of whom was Lewis Turtis. Uh, where other people would be, Von Arnhem going in with other people, some of whom's names are suppressed. And, you know, the door closes and the horror begins. Then we get into the murders. So the first murder, 1979, Alan Barnes, uh, he was murdered actually on his 17th birthday. And it moves through, we've got a 17-year-old, we've got an 18-year-old, we've got a 14-year-old, a 23-year-old, it's 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 horrendous and, and always the same MO. Picked up, drugged, sexually assaulted. Richard Kirwan was held for get this, five weeks. Oh, that's so awful. He was held for so long that his hair grew. Mm. And that according to a, a gay man who kept prolific diaries around that time. Uh, and I interviewed his brother who showed me these diaries and read bits of it for the podcast. Horrendous. He was crying. I was crying. A hairdresser, a guy called Dennis and Dennis, who's now dead, went in and cut Richard Kelvin's hair by all accounts. This is the boy who walked down to the bus stop to say goodbye to his best friend Carl who'd been hanging out at Richard's house. Richard was the son of the newsreader. Yeah, he was the son of the newsreader in Adelaide. His dad's really famous. And as a joke, on his way out the door, he's put on a dog lead, uh, like a dog collar around his neck with sort of studs on it. That's right. And Carl said, take it off, mate, you look stupid. So he took it off and he put it around his wrist. When I went into prison to interview Von Arnhem, who's the only guy who's been convicted of the family uh, murders, I went in in 2018, and even I was astonished that, I got in there to meet him. I said to him, I caught him off guard. I caught him on the hop. He wasn't expecting my question. And I slithered in underneath him and said, uh, was because he'd always told the police that, no, Richard Kelvin was not wearing a dog collar. They found him with the dog collar. They found his body with it. I said, was he wearing a dog collar? And he said, yes, he was. So I got him. I got him. Yeah. And that's really important um, for a couple of reasons. One, it proves that, that he was lying. Two, it, it, um, if he was lying about that, what else was he lying about? Yeah. Um, because he's always denied um, that he murdered Richard and indeed at that um, meeting in prison he said he blamed Richard. He blamed his victim. He said that he was gay. He was not. And it, even if he had been gay, so what? What was done to that boy is beyond depravity. And indeed, all the others. And it's not that anyone that that people didn't care about the other boys, but he was just happened to be the son of a very high profile newsreader and a much loved newsreader. So when when his son went missing, all hell broke loose. 
you know, this was just out of control now. You know, this is the fifth boy from 1979. So Richard went missing in 1983. And, you know, there are no charges. that They're not within cooey of working out who has done this or if they have worked it out, they haven't got enough evidence to charge uh, Von Einem or anyone else. So he was walking back to his house, right? He could see his house from the spot where he was abducted. He, he, he took, yeah, he took Carl to the bus stop. Uh-huh. Uh, he waved him off. And the last thing that uh, Richard yelled out when Carl was mucking around because there were preachers on the other side of the road and they were mucking uh-huh. around to each other as 15-year-old boys do. And the last thing that Richard yelled out was hallelujah. Oh. Mm. He was, he was on his way home. He was scared of the dark. It was getting dark. It was winter. It was cold. And he tried to get home. <laughs> it always makes me cry. Sorry. He tried to get home and those bastards wouldn't let him. Was he? Um, no, I know. It's just, it, it is really, it's really unbearable. And um... it is unbearable. It is unbearable. Mm. So. He was he was held by them for five weeks. Mm-hmm. Was that the longest? It feels as um, was that the longest that they kept any of their victims? It was the it, it was the worst yeah. attack, wasn't it? Yes, it's, it was. It's horrifying. It was, and I, you know, when I was writing the book, I kept thinking, why? Why did they hold him so long? Were they playing that long? Really, really? Or was there so much heat on them that they couldn't? They had nowhere to put him. Uh, and, you know, it appears that, that you know, Von Arnhem may have dropped him off or pushed him, you know, into the bush uh, at that five-week mark after he'd taken his mother to a family party. There's a photo of Von Arnhem eating cake and drinking tea from a dainty cup <clears throat> and then dropped him and then probably went back and picked up mum, took her home. I don't understand. I just can't get my head around this. And it's like I said before, it's like so unbelievable mm-hmm. you, it, and evil, actually. It's, I think it's the evilness of it that is so frightening. Well, it's, you know, they knew they were hunting parties. They, you know, they knew what they wanted. It was, it was boys to order. And, you know, we're not just talking about that group, that group of family murders. There was a coterie of different pedophiles, different groups of pedophiles in Adelaide at that time. You know, one uh, was a guy called Rick Marshall, who's now dead, but he ran the Cottage Theatre. I mean, he had boys on tap there. You know, he he would do a play and then sexually assault boys in the intermission, you know, it was like, and then go back on stage. You know, these are horrendous crimes that were going on right through the 70s. You know, and, and the lead-up offences, the, the 200 boys with, with Von Einem and his his shabby band of, of men. Where did they keep Richard, by the way, for this five-week period? Was he in one of these houses that they had or? Possibly. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know because, the, you know, Von Einem will never give up his secrets. He will take them to his grave. It's his little bit of power. It, it's frustrating because Adelaide's a small town. And the amount of information that you were able to divulge about some of those people feels like so many people must know who they are. I don't know who they are because I'm not from Adelaide, but I do know that it is the kind of town where, you know, a lot of people would know. So it's like, it just, it's, it's such bullshit, isn't it? Like, it feels like it's just like, Mm. come on. 
again, what is the purpose? Well, I think Lewis just said it better than anybody could. When, um, so that, you know, that is, in Jono's terms, that was a really good get. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was astonished when he agreed to speak to me and I said, you know, can we sit, can we talk rather than, you know, face to face? And he said, yeah. So 10 minutes later, he was sitting in the back of our hire car uh, with my director. I can still visualise that in my mind. I was like, because I could hear his nerves and him saying more than he planned yeah. to and more than he wanted to. And I, I was listening to you in my headphones and I was visualising it. It was such an amazing thing to listen to. It would be really good actually for your audience to actually hear a little bit of that that podcast. Amazing. um, Because I found the way he spoke extraordinary Uh, and it was a really good lesson for me in in really listening to not just what people are saying but what they're not saying. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, you may remember that when he would say, okay, he would rise. Yes. Okay. Okay. Let's have a listen to that, maybe. Let, let's let's go back to the beginning, Lewis. Um, right. So, did you have any involvement with Von Einem? I had sex with Von Einem, mm-hmm. but I have, didn't have anything to do with the murders all out there. So, nothing to do with murders at nothing all. Nothing at all. How how did you come to meet Von Einem in the first place? Through a friend, through a friend. Mm-hmm. Do you know who that friend was? Yes, but he's no longer here, so I can't really say his name. It's Brian, but I can't say his last name. Brian so. Gant. Yes. Okay. Brian Gant is also on the list of suppressed names we had lifted. He was another of Von Arnhem's boyfriends. You know, we all have a circle of friendships. Yeah. Who? What was your circle of friendship? Who, who were the people you hung out with? Well, most of them are more dead now, so... It doesn't matter, but it, it, give me the name, sorry. Brian Noel. Yep, Noel Brooks. Yes. Mm-hmm. Brian Gant. Brian Gant. Mm-hmm. There was Prue. Prue Furman. We stopped together through thick and thin, okay? Gant, Brooks and Furman all appear in Von Einem's court transcripts and Trevor Peter's diaries. Prue said that Bevan von Einem frequently took drug young men there to have sex with them. She said that Lewis would always have the bed made and candles ready. OK, it was suggested that you, you know, with with the, some of the people you just named, mm. the boys were taken to your house and that you made the beds ready for those boys mm. and that you lit the candles for them. Please know the guys came back to our place, so... What sort of condition were these guys in? They were drugged. Bonana drugged them. Do you know what? I think you're incredibly courageous to admit that. So how did you be in a position where Von Einem was taking boys drugged back to your house? Not just boys, minors. Underage boys who were drugged back to your house. How come, Lewis? I don't know, honestly. It's a long time ago, so... How come you got the lucky dip? I think I was just stupid at the time, okay? But anyway, I can't live... How many boys, uh, Lewis? I don't know, honestly. Roughly? Maybe half a dozen. Okay. But that that half a dozen were... Could see the next morning, okay? Broke up the next morning, went home, so... Went home. How would they get home? By the way, could they catch a train home or catch a bus home? That's fine. Okay, so you say the boys were drugged. How drugged? In what condition were they to be giving consent? Um, I don't know how they were drugged. 
Okay. How did he sense? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. All I know, they came, he dropped them off at our place. He went home. We let them sleep off. They left in the morning, so. Okay, this is not the story I've heard. Isn't it? The story I've heard is this, and this is why it's very good that you're getting your right of reply mm. here, your opportunity to tell your side of the story. So the story I've heard is that the boys were dropped off by Van Arnhem. He would sometimes leave them there. He would sometimes stay with them. But he was quite territorial with those boys. The things he wanted to do to those boys... No, I never saw any of that. Nothing. You never saw that? Never saw that there, OK. But you, but you know that that's what he, he did, didn't, don't we you? We heard afterwards that's what he did. But he never did that. Why? they came out to my place. I wouldn't let that happen, OK? OK. So what would happen to the boys when they got back to your place then? They usually just sleep off. Why would you accept drug boys back at your house? Because <sighs> I was a stupid fool, wasn't I? How old were you? Um, Roughly. Mid-20s. OK. Did anyone have sex with those drug boys back at your house? I suppose someone did, yes. Who was the someone, Lewis? No, and all those there, but I don't... Look, That's a it's strange. a long time ago, OK? Could you please tell me who had sex with those boys? No, I can't. I'm sorry. Let's go a bit too far. OK, so can I assume then, without you naming them, um, that they were the people that you named earlier? Yes. So I'll, I'll go through those names. So Prue Furman, who's now dead, suppression has been lifted on her name. Noel Brooks, who is now dead, suppression being lifted on his name. Brian Gant, dead, suppression lifted, and suppression lifted on your name. How come that all the others had sex with these boys and you didn't? Yes, I've had sex with them, OK? OK. Lewis, thank you. Transparency and truth always works because there's no point otherwise. Okay. You know, in his words, I said to him, what would you say to other people who who's, who have, you know, had suppressions around their name? He said, oh, for God's sake, have them lifted. It's time, okay? It's time. It is time. It's way beyond time uh, that, that those suppressions are lifted and that we... Um, in the words of a, a, a fantastic lawyer in Adelaide, he said, Debbie, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Oh, what a great phrase. It's so true. You know, what was Leonard Cohen said, that's how the light comes in. It doesn't sound like Lewis has had a great life while the suppression order's on. Was it just laziness or forgetting these suppression orders were on that they weren't lifted or is there something more sinister at play? He actually didn't um, ask for that suppression to be put on. It was just just put on around around his name at the time. And now his mother's dead. Um, he's agreed to have that suppression lifted. He was willing to share his stories. And I think we need to uh, acknowledge his courage, actually, in not just coming forward to have that suppression lifted or agreeing to it, but also in sitting with me on three occasions and talking to me. I'm sure he did say things that he wished he hadn't said. But it's not easy talking to a journalist at the best of times and it's certainly not easy when you've got things tickling you awake at night as they do Lewis Turter. You know, some of those memories he's got are pretty awful. Thank you to patrons Anthea, Helen Howden, Ilonka Rood, Mary Pout, Sass and Lindy Doughty. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. It's believed at least 150 young men and boys were abducted from the streets of Adelaide, drugged and raped by this one loose collective alone, who went on to be known as the family. That nickname, by the way, came from a police detective during an interview on 60 Minutes who took the opportunity to assure the public that police were taking action to break up the happy family of pedophiles that was hunting the streets of Adelaide. Five of the victims of that group are known to have been murdered, although many suspect there were more. The five known victims were Alan Barnes, aged 17, who was abducted while hitchhiking on June 18, 1979. His mutilated body was found six days later, dumped near South Para Reservoir. Neil Muir, aged 25, with no fixed address. Muir was last seen on August 28, 1979, after being ejected from an Adelaide club by a bouncer. His remains were found the next day in two separate garbage bags in the Port River. Peter Strognev, aged 14, skipped school on August 27, 1981, and was never seen alive again. A farmer burning off crops in Middle Beach found his charred remains 10 months later. Mark Langley, aged 18, had an argument with friends near the Torrens River on the night of February 27, 1982 and got out of their car. They drove off and returned later to find him gone. Nine days later, hikers found his remains in the Adelaide foothills. And finally, Richard Kelvin, aged 15, the son of local Channel 9 newsreader Rob Kelvin who disappeared while walking home from dropping a friend off at the bus stop. He'd been held captive for five weeks. We've chosen not to go into detail about the injuries to the victims, but suffice to say there was a trademark. 
Bevan Spencer von Einem is the man believed to have inflicted those injuries. And he's the only person to have been convicted in relation to any of these crimes. He was convicted of only one of the murders, and that's Richard Kelvin's. In 1984, he was sentenced to life in prison for that crime. Debbie Marshall met Von Einem in Port Augusta Prison in 2019. I mean, my opinion of Von Einem is not just that he's a coward uh, with, with brutal sexual fetishes and fantasies, but that he's also probably impotent. I think that he, he played out. He wanted to be a somebody. He, he didn't want to be the, the little bookkeeper that he was living at home with mummy. He wanted to be a somebody. He'd tell people he was a gynaecologist or a pilot. Uh, no, actually, he was just a creep, a, a, you know, a real grub who's, who tragically enacted his fantasies. Uh, yeah, because his sexual thing was was really almost surgical, wasn't it, without going into detail? Like he wasn't, he had really weird fetishes it was yeah yeah it was and you know I know that you know true crimes everywhere and it's um people love it and so do I love it I think it's a, a fascinating genre but I think we need to be really mindful that true crime is always told for the right reason it is not entertainment it is not entertainment and I wouldn't want people to read my book as entertainment please read it for, for what it is which is you know, a very up close, very personal approach to what happened, lots of ideas and lots of talking to other people about what happened, including getting to someone who was actually inside the investigation for the first time, which is great, but also looking at what was happening generally in South Australia, you know. Well, that's it. I always say that I think true crime is valuable in that it's a window into systems in our society and how they're working and not working. And when you look at enough true crime, you'd see consistent patterns of systems that are broken. Yeah. The suppression order situation is a classic example. You've just highlighted and shone a light on the fact that these orders are sitting there for no reason at all and protecting people for no reason at all. It's a classic example. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. And what I, what I call for in the book, because, because I don't do true crime for entertainment, because I try to, you know, get behind things and see if they're, if they're solvable, I'm just the caretaker of these people's stories, you know. Um, so I'm the voice piece, really, for for the families and the victims. I'm calling for a royal commission. They are calling for a royal commission. You know, let's let the light in. We do have outstanding murders, and going right back, right back to Dr. George Duncan. That's outstanding. Let's have a look at what was going on in Adelaide in the sixties, the seventies. You know, those pedophile groups. I need help to get to try to get suppression orders lifted, and it's you know it's it's resource heavy. It's it, it takes money, it takes time. It's going to take a gutsy lawyer to want to get behind it, or maybe someone who's retired who who has time to do that. I know that there are some really really good lawyers in this country, and you know why not get behind something that is so important? Because most of us are parents, and all of us know that it is not acceptable to have unsolved murders of children or young men. That is not acceptable in anyone's language. So, you know, I think we all need to pull together. I think people need to be voting with their feet, particularly in South Australia. A couple of days before deadline, I was looking for the 14-year-old Peter Stogneff's parents. I'd been looking for them for a year and I couldn't find them. And I got to the point where I thought maybe they're dead. I just couldn't find them. And I got a 
an email from a Pentecostal pastor in Adelaide saying, Mrs. Stogneff wants to talk to you. She's seen your series. I went, oh, my God, she's alive. Not just talk to me. She put me on a plane that afternoon. I sat down with this woman who at the four-decade mark still cannot accept that it is her son in the grave. Now, if you, if you juxtapose that image of this broken woman begging me to please help her try to talk to someone to have her son's body exhumed again, please tell me it's Peter Debbie. Please find me some proof. What do I do with that? And then you juxtapose that image of her against the image of Von Arnhem, you know, this six-foot-five bloke cruising the streets and picking up boys that are later murdered. You know, I, I always think about him and the, the parents and the victims because he knows who else was involved in those murders He's never going to tell us. So we need to try to interrogate that ourselves now. We need to try to prosecute that. Sunlight's the best disinfectant. How did you find sitting with him? What a strange experience. He's made himself such a um, mysterious figure, I guess, hasn't he? Because he he's taken that he's gone to prison for the rest of his life. He's never spoken of the crimes. He's never given anyone else up. He's never given any details at all what was that experience like well for a start I, I you know I thought there was going to be like the you know what you see in American movies where there's a window between you and the phone and hello I'm Debbie Marshall you know and you you must be Mr Van Arnhem there was nothing it was just him six foot five and me five foot one and a half touching knees almost uh, whilst he sat there and, and spun this fantastic narrative about himself spun this fabulous fantasy about what a what a lovely man he is and he didn't do it. And actually it was it was Richard Kelvin's fault because he was passive and you know it wasn't him until we got to the dog mm. collar when he realized and as I say in the book he he the words got out of his mouth before he could catch them. And then the psychopath came up. Mm. I, I saw him change mm. uh, so quickly that I thought, mm, whoops, I'm in trouble oh, here. Oh, really? I'm in trouble here. And, and I later debriefed as I had to with a um, forensic psychologist. And I said, you know, for a moment I thought that he might um, strangle me. And he said, uh, there's a line between stupidity and courage and you've crossed it, he wouldn't have strangled you. He'd have, he'd have snapped your neck oh. and the, the guards wouldn't have had time to get to you. Has he ever, uh, what sort of prisoner is he? Is he? Has he ever, you know, uh, enacted any violence inside or? No, no. They. Um, he used to be in Yatala where he's now in Port Augusta, which is a long way up a lonely road, Uh but Yatala, he had access to younger, younger prisoners. Uh, one of whom, for example, came forward when, when he was released and said, you know, Von Arnhem raped me and um, nothing was prosecuted from that. 
Uh, you know, he had something of a, a, a power trip. He was on something of a power trip in Yatala. Now I'm pleased to announce that he's an old man in an, in the old age unit, uh, complains of having diabetes, little bits of heart failure. Um, but his friend Paul, who sadly died, um, it was a guy who was a go-between, his lifelong friend who remained ridiculously loyal to him but was a lovely man and just didn't want to turn his back on him, I guess. He gave me all the things that Von Arnhem had given to him to hold on to when he went to prison, and one of them was stuff that had come out of prison when Von Arnhem, since Von Arnhem has been in there, newspaper articles, newspaper articles that, that Von Arnhem hands you know hands around and marks circles and marks and signs and lends to other high profile prisoners many of whom are pedophiles oh, about yeah. himself or about about, about the snowtown murders oh. about the beaumont children about the family murders oh. it's like how can this be how are they getting mm. access to this how do they get this opportunity mm. No. Well, I've heard there's a, a market, you know, be, because people inside get evidence to do with their own cases, so they get crime scene mm-hmm. photos and stuff mm-hmm. that they share. Yeah. yeah. Oh, look, absolutely. And, you know, when I went in, he said, oh, because I was told, um, warned, in no uncertain terms by a criminal profiler, be very careful, give nothing of yourself away. Think Clarice Starling yeah. in Silence of the Lambs. It, it actually was, and I, you know, I don't mean to sound dramatic saying that, it was actually exactly the same, except she did have something between her and Hannibal Lecter. Mm. Um, she said, give nothing of yourself away. And one of the first things he said to me, because they zero in on you, these psychopaths, he said, oh, I saw you on television the other night talking about the Snowtown thing. And I thought, oh, my God. He's, he's not just been tracking me a little bit ahead of me coming in, but why has he been given access to watch the Snowtown? Yeah, thing? he's so right, yeah. You know, so as, as I say, you know, they salivate. Yeah, that would be like porn to those guys. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's wrong. Yeah. It's so wrong so you know all of it is in the book um uh, and the other reason I called it banquet uh, not just because I saw it as, as, as a debauched feasting on young flesh um but when I was just nearing the end of the book um I found a, a quote by Robert Louis Stevenson that said Sorry, when I was not sorry, when I was nearing the end of the podcast, I found a quote by Robert Louis Stevenson that said, "Everyone sooner or later sits down to a banquet of consequences." Oh, and I put that to Louis Serta. Everyone sooner or later sits down to a banquet of consequences, and he sighed and said, "Well, I guess this is my banquet." Oh. You know what? They all need to go to the banquet. It's time. Do you know what? became of the other people i know that you um that, that we know who some of the other perpetrators were the some of the transvestites for example and people like that what what became of them well we don't know who else was involved in the murders right um uh we do know through lewis turner yeah. telling us stories that that von Arnhem, uh with 
some other people whose names are suppressed mm. um, um, by, by Turter's account, went back to his house on, on a couple of occasions that he knows of um, and that, that drug boys were taken back there uh, and were let go the next day. We know that. Um, we know the hairdresser but, died, you know, don't we? The, um... Dennis and Dennis died and he was a very close friend of Von Arnhem's. Uh, there were some transvestites who died, Preferman, for example, uh, whose name was suppressed and that suppression was lifted. Um, there, there were others. But the other thing about these suppressions is, uh, which I found extraordinary, and I'm happy to stand corrected here, but my understanding is that uh, when, when that suppression list was put in, that people are contacted. Are you happy to have your, your na- the suppression lifted? Mm. Well, how many people are going to say yes? yes. Lewis Turter, to his credit, did. One transvestite, for example, uh, her family was approached, she's now dead, and they said no. So suppression remains. Mm. I don't get that. No. Uh, suppression's around dead people. Mm. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um. You know, I think we just need to always come back to the the question of of the great injustice in all of this, you know, the unsolved murders. Are Richard Kelvin's parents still living? Yes. Both? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I made, it took me a long time to come to it as a journalist. You know, we always want to talk to everyone, don't we, firsthand. But I made a conscious decision not to approach the Kelvins. The person I who did approach me on the back of the series was Carl, the young boy who was with Richard the day he went oh, to the to the God, bus God, how is he? he? He contacted me. He's, he's a mess. Yeah. He's a broken, broken adult. Yeah. Uh, and he said, I have never been able to, to discuss this in all these years. Um, and as I say in the book, nothing nothing assuages his grief and his guilt that he was the survivor. I bet. Nothing. Yeah. Uh, I said to him one day, Carl, you know, maybe would you have you considered getting some help? And he's done that and he's come back fighting, fighting now and saying, let's do this together, Debbie, let's Let's go and, you know, do whatever we can and calling himself for people. If you know something, please, please come forward. Good on him. Um, and I say in the book, you know, that the day he rang me and said, Debbie, I'm getting some help and I'm feeling better, I'm feeling stronger, I'm feeling so much better, I, I say in the book, hallelujah. Oh, God, good on you. Had he never had counselling before Is you that... suggested it? No, he hadn't, oh. but... But hallelujah, you know, the, the, the last yeah. words those two boys said to each other. But his mum, uh, by Carl's account, and his fa- uh, Richard's father, beautiful, beautiful people. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't approach them, and I do hope that, you know, they probably won't read the book, but that they do understand why I chose to write it. It certainly wasn't for entertainment's sake. Mm. His mum was, was a, you know, a real mum as in worried about her kids, fretted, as as we all do, mm-hmm. I guess. And it, uh, Richard had, had had a bit of a cold and she fretted about him going down um, to the bus stop in winter, you know, and why is he late coming home? 
And so she was talking to someone years later, a police officer, and he said, when is it harder, hardest, when you think, look back? And she said, because it had been winter, she said, when the leaves fall, oh. that's when it's worst. <laughs> Here I go, yeah. I'm crying. I'm just, you know, I've, I've wept buckets and buckets of tears doing this story um, for the last few years, but I can't imagine what the... You know, people like um, Alan Barnes's mother, Neil Muir's mother, Peter Stogmeth's, you know, the parents, the mothers, the fathers, the siblings. This is for them. Thank you to our guest, Debbie Marshall, author of Banquet, The Untold Story of Adelaide's Family Murders, which is available now. Thank you to our patrons, Misty Hall, Belle Smith, Tracy Southey, Elizabeth, Renee Portland and Renata DiVincenzo. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well. So, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.